Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss Big Beat, the popular scene that launched the Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, and the Prodigy into mainstream international success. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm back once again with Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And this week, we had to bring in some ringers to help Simon because we're talking about Big Beat, and he's a little thin on it. Uh, this... Yeah, this chapter is called Outro 90s House Speed Garage and Big Beat. So it's almost like this is this is the last chapter of the original of the 1998 edition of the book. So he just kind of like slaps a whole bunch of things together. And, and I mean, outro is more accurate than, than any of the other labels on it. So we decided we wanted to give speed garage more, 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 more info. We wanted to give big beat more into info. So we're going to do a big beat episode. Yes. And we'll come back and we'll do speed garage and nineties house as its own episode as well. Cause as you can see from the rest of the book from the second edition, the garage side ends up being way more influential than Big Beat, which was an extremely popular subgenre that really didn't leave historical marks. And we'll talk about why. I also wanted to shout out the Little Big Beat book by Rory Hoy that I read um, to prep for this. And did you end up using that Prodigy book that you had? Uh, no, I haven't been able to get it because my entire province is under complete lockdown and we can't see anybody. So at the moment, uh, there's no way for me to get my hands on the on the teensy tiny prodigy book. But I did listen to a bunch of prodigy interviews and podcasts and stuff like that. So I feel pretty up to speed on everything. Excellent. Not as excellent. much as you. I think this is actually the first time we're going to do a electronic music episode together. Where after you've read this little big book, little big beat book, 
you'll know more than I do coming in. So I'm kind of excited to ask you some questions. Well, we'll see. I've read it quickly over the weekend and my retention is limited and not to dismiss Mr. Hoy. It's got lots of good information in it, but um, he's no Simon Reynolds. Let's just say that. And, and so it's kind of hard to distill. There's a lot of info and he gets into a lot of the minor groups. And we're going to be sticking to the bigger groups. So anyway, we'll see how much it helps. It's the fault is mine, not Mr. Hoy's. It's a, it's a fine, a fine worthy tome. And as far as I know, the only book length treatment of big beat. So let's start out with, I think I want to quote Norman uh, Smith, AKA fat boy slim as saying that, what is big beat? He said, I always thought the formula of big beat was the break beats of hip hop, the energy of acid house and the pop sensibilities of the Beatles with a little bit of punk sensibility all rolled into one people like the prodigy and the chemical brothers. We saw it as very similar to the Beatles and the stones who grew up listening to soul records and blues records and then sold an English version of it back to America. I think that last point is probably touching on the most historically important part of Big Beat was it really helped break electronic music to the American mass rock audience in the late 90s. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. They're talking about the formula of Big Beat, and it wasn't just this kind of nebulous idea. Uh, as the story goes, uh, Norman Smith's uh, old roommate who started Skint Records uh, basically kind of laid out the formula to Norman Smith and kind of said, this here, is, these are these are the elements, these are what I want, put these together and, and make these tracks. Cause uh, you know, apparently Fatboy Slim had some, this is surprising for somebody who has such a, such a prodigious output, but he'd sometimes lose some, lose, lose a little bit of his momentum going forward with stuff. And uh, so his buddy over at Skint basically said, okay, give me tracks with these elements to them. So it wasn't it wasn't some kind of questionable something or other. It was a blueprint that they were following. Yeah, and and uh, and by the time he had done that, the Chemical Brothers, I think, had already kind of perfected the template, and Prodigy was moving in that direction. And we'll talk about that a little more. I want to give some of Reynolds. I want to drop some of Reynolds' quotes about Big B, which he's commenting on at the time when it was one of the biggest uh, elements going in not just the dance music scene, but I think that's the thing about Big Beat is it superseded the dance music scene pretty quickly. It was never a dominant thing in the dance music scene. Even the club nights where the formula was perfected and the kind of the scene came together tended to be second rooms or smaller clubs in within clubs that were playing garage or uh, happy hardcore or something else. So it never really dominated the dance floors, but it did move units in the record shops um, from from right from the beginning. Yeah, so, it, it sat more in mainstream Rose clubs. It down. Can, I think this is important too. He says, uh, Big Beat represented the latest stage in British Rave's abiding musical narrative, the attempt to fuse house and hip hop. And I, and I, I think he's pretty right about that. Um, you know, the hip house was a, a an American form. Terry Edwards, the DJ, kind of pioneered it in the late '80s, but it didn't click. And we've talked about that on multiple shows for different reasons. Just the hip hop and the house scenes were playing to different people who didn't necessarily want to get along and didn't want to be in the same places. And hip hop was being used as a listening music or a driving around music, and house was being used as a dance music to different uses, different contexts, different cultures. House also was big in the gay scene. Hip hop 
has struggled with homophobia its entire career, but the Brits didn't have those hangups. And so they'd been trying to put those things together. Hip House was much bigger in Britain than it ever was in the States and Acid House from the get go. Um, drew yeah, a lot just of to just to clarify, as far as the difference between kind of uh, what Hip House did is Hip House was was hip hop rapping over house music for the most part. And Big Beat took the hip hop beats from hip hop and brought them kind of across into dance music. So that was that's kind of the big the big difference and why I think uh, Big Beat had such such success while Hip House kind of never really jived because they were getting hip hop rap and over over house music, which I don't know if that's so much of a winning formula, but you know, the hip hop beats bring it over and you mix it all together. And then you've got like the new Reese's peanut butter cup. Excellent point. Excellent point. And, and yeah, the tempos of house for one thing have always made it difficult to rap over and, and British rap grime is going to be coming up at some point. And, you know, they mastered rapping faster and that comes from the whole reggae, uh, uh, side of the family tree as well. This ability to, to rap at, at high speeds that American hip hop rappers didn't want to do. But yeah, um, he also says that hip hop, I mean, not hip hop, that Big Beat was, quote, jungle's stupid. And he didn't use the word stupid, he used the R word, which we're not allowed to use anymore. Jungle's stupid cousin. They would occasionally steal the odd jittery rhythm programming trick, but generally, favored much more simplistic looped breaks. So you've got these beat scientists like Goldie et al. and the jungle scene that are really doing complicated things with sped up break beats and pitch shifting, et cetera. Um, the big beat guys were not doing that. They were not that technical. They were just slapping loops together and just going for the fun. I mean, you know, Reynolds says that they resisted the tyranny of good taste and quote intelligence and big beat Big Beat has brought back a sense of messy, mindless fun. Big Beat regresses to those eras when rave music itself was most rock and roll and its druggy abandoned. Madchester, Breakbeat Hardcore, Acid House, late 80s DJ records. And that's another thing that's kind of ironic. Not a particularly druggy scene. Although uh, Amyl Nitrate, which is Poppers, was um, associated with the scene. And for a while, they some people tried to call it Amyl House before... Um, Big Beat became the name that it was it was known for. But yeah, so that's kind of interesting. It's, it's a lot of lads drinking lager and, and occasionally taking pills, but kind of the whole 80, ni late 90s uh, polydrug thing. It's not it's not an ecstasy thing. But let's well, go ahead and hear. It just, it just kind of shows you uh, how it kind of goes back into mainstream rock music almost, how Big Beat crosses that boundary back there because we kind of got into dance music to get away from that lager drinking uh, crowd and then all of a sudden, Big Beat comes up, mixes everything together, gets the rock licks back in there, gets gets the pop hooks back in, and all of a sudden we're back where we started, drinking a bunch of beers so. <laughs> with a bunch of big burly dudes crowding the club. So, well, let's go ahead and hear a little bit. This is Fatboy Slim's Michael Jackson from Fat Boy Slim's Michael Jackson from 1995. Definitely a definitive big beat track, I would say. And the thing about it is um, that 
it's if you if you read interviews with Norman Smith and the Chemical Brothers that they did start out as DJs in clubs. Well, it's a little complicated because Norman Smith was originally the bass player in the House Martins, Norman et cetera, Cook. et cetera. Uh, Norman gonna, Cook. Fix you yes. right there before we start getting emails. Yes, yes. How many times did I call him Norman Smith? Oh, Jesus just just Christ. twice, just twice. Okay, good, good, good. All right, yeah, I'm totally senile at this point, or incipient senility and, and, and proper nouns, uh, yeah, just flow incorrectly. But they did DJ, and they DJed very eclectic nights so they weren't just djing you know when the chemical brothers would do a set it wouldn't just sound like a chemical brothers album they were throwing all kinds of records on and reynolds points out that unlike the smooth seamless mixes that that techno or house djs were doing these guys were more like a jukebox where they're just throwing on one record then throwing on the next record etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's one of the reasons and we'll get to this later why um Cook and the Chemical Brothers and others disassociated themselves from Big Beat because they felt like once they had become successful with this formula, the formula got ripped off and kind of run into the ground. And they quickly evolved into other kinds of music and managed to mostly keep their careers going. But let's talk a little bit about the musical precursors. I think you have to give a big shout out to Mantronics, the um, late 80s uh, hip hop group, kind of a late electro group. Um, that was sort of superseded by what we think of as the golden age of hip hop. You know, once Eric B and Rakim started sampling James Brown records and, and, you know, people like Public Enemy and the Bomb Squad and Prince Paul with De La Soul and the Dust Brothers, who we'll talk about later, start doing this kind of plunder phonics mega sampling style. It pushed away um, electro kind of prematurely, but Mantronics was a big influence on the Chemical Brothers and others. And also, that entire wave of British DJ records that we keep talking about from 87, 88, um, Mars, Cold Cut, et cetera, et cetera. It's fascinating to me how that style really only lasted a year tops. None of those artists really made a career out of it, unless you want to include the KLF in that category. And uh, yet it seems to have had a lasting influence and impact. Well, I feel like they might have been murdered uh, prematurely by the legalities of of, of sampling. Uh, any track that got any kind of toehold and started selling units immediately, you'd have the lawyers suddenly coming over. By the time you know the end of the the start of the '90s, sampling was was basically a kind of a, a big no-no. You couldn't get away with what you wanted to anymore. You couldn't pull another Paul's boutique out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's that's the, you know, that killed the golden age of hip hop was a big factor in that. Um, but that earlier wave of, of not really earlier, but that British wave of, of sample records had a very short lifespan. But yeah, all of them were dogged by lawsuits. And, and Norman Cook uh, himself was uh, constantly dogged by lawsuits. And we'll talk about one of the tracks he did that, that where he ended up paying more than I think double the royalties he made off the record back to the to the uh, copyright holders and stuff. I also want to mention um, uh, U.S. producer Josh Wink and the bass bin trend bass bin twins, who is a California producer Pete Hauser. Um, those artists were both um, cited as influences by the Chemical Brothers and others. And also DJ Hype, the Jungle producer, had some tracks that I think uh, pointed towards Big Beat in a, in a big way. Yeah, I think um, you can't ignore uh, the 
the influence of early breaks, especially uh, the the uh, the U.S. break scene that was kind of come along. I find a lot of the records that the U.K. guys were playing were 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 simple break tracks that were coming out of New York. They were basically being made as DJ tools to lay over other tracks, really thin, really simple. And then you had all of a sudden guys from, you know, California and Florida really starting to funky up the brakes, adding more stuff into it. And that's where you have stuff like the basement twins coming out. And eventually that's where you have stuff like the, uh, the crystal method happening. But, uh, you know, one other element that I, that we can't overlook is the hip hop element that comes a lot from Paul's boutique by the beastie boys, that kind of sound. I feel like the, the production on that album, is one of the core features of the of the big beat sound is the big beat itself you know a lot of break beats can count, sound somewhat tinny uh when you're sampling them off of old records and the big beat guys or initially the hip-hop guys took the beat and compressed the hell out of it making that that big sausage uh sound making it big and loud and uh you know without without that kind of imagination or without that kind of technical know-how i don't think you get as big a beat and then you don't get the big beat so uh there's a a specific single off of the paul's boutique album called uh love american style that has two dance remixes of uh of tracks off of paul's boutique and to me it once again it lays out the the blueprint of what a big beat track is and it's come came out in like 1989 and no one really talks about it. There's, it's not listed in a bunch of influences, but you got to figure these UK DJs and, and considering the fame of the Beastie Boys at the time, they must have heard this thing. Oh, and absolutely. It, I mean, and and the Chemical Brothers called themselves the Dust Brothers and open homage to the Dust Brothers who were the producers of Paul's Boutique. So yeah, I have no doubt that the Chemical Brothers at least knew that whole discography backwards and forwards and were, and were copying that style. And also... I want to shout out the the next couple of Beastie Boy albums. I mean, Check Your Head and um, whatever the one that had Sabotage on it. Sabotage is basically a big beat track, really. Um, it's got more vocals than most of the big beat track. But I remember hearing Sabotage back to back with the Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim over and over and over in the late 90s. It just, um, you know, I think the Beastie Boys continued to develop that style even though they weren't allowed to use the sampling techniques anymore they had to switch back to to live instrumentations and sampling their own instruments and things like that but i think that they, they, they kind of kept that that rock um dance hip-hop fusion going as well yeah absolutely so it's a it's a good nod where you want to start looking at the hip-hop influence on big beat is to to start there and then work your way out and you'll be pleasantly surprised yeah, absolutely. And don't forget Public Enemy, massive influence on the Chemical Brothers and others. And also uh, De La Soul's um, first album produced by Prince Paul were also exemplars of that style. But let's talk about the Prodigy for a minute, because they're the one group that were legit hardcore breakbeat successes. A massive force in the 91-92 scene. Uh, when hardcore breakbeat and rave had its massive second wave of popularity, bigger than the first wave of popularity in 88, 89. And, um, you know, it's it's Liam Howlett, a producer from Essex, who made all the music. Only much later did uh, Keith Flint and Maxim Reality start rapping on the records. Initially, they were dancers, but they were critical in, in encouraging him to get out there and be a live act. And that's the weird thing about Prodigy for that era of white label bedroom producers, they were a live act from the get-go. Yeah, and, and it was quite a it was quite a live act too. 
And uh, it, it's funny when we were talking about Madchester, I think it was the the Happy Mondays that had their own kind of dancing, uh, dancing fool that kind of went out and, and got everybody hyped up and stuff like that. And, and here you have in the rave scene, you have a couple of these bands and it's always it always amuses me when there's one guy kind of at the back having to push all the buttons and then you need three or four people up front to actually pump up the crowd. Yeah, and but but it's a successful formula. Let's go ahead and cue our second tune. And we'll come back and talk about the Prodigy's first wave of um, musical success. But first, let's hear the Chemical Brothers Leave Home from 1995. And why did you pick this particular track, Ryan? Uh, it was the first album off uh, Exit Planet, uh, first track off Exit Planet Dust. And I think it captures that that really kind of bombastic breakbeat sound along with a lot of instrumentation and stuff like that, which was very, you know, revolutionary and different at the time. So I figured, you know, we could have gone earlier to Song of the Siren, which is uh, 1992, which I think is their first kind of uh, release. But I thought Leave Home was when they've kind of perfected the sound and put it out on that album. All right. The Chemical Brothers, Leave Home. Chemical Brothers leave home from 1995, but let's get back to the Prodigy. And so, and we talked about them in the hardcore breakbeat episode, but which they were unavoidable because they were a huge uh, factor, not just because of their What Evil Lurks EP from 1991 and kind of their underground dance hits, but Charlie, their pop hit, I think it went to number three on the UK charts, um, massive success but triggers a big backlash. This is going to be a recurring trend in the Prodigy's whole career, but they were blamed for, you know, the, the toy town techno wave and mix mag said that they killed rave. And, you know, Reynolds talks about how they seemed marked for extinction along with that whole scene, you know, classic case, hardcore breakbeats, 92 era rave just gets so big that there's, um, you know, a massive backlash. And most of the groups from that era, uh, Enjoy comes to mind, for example. Like this is a band that had multiple top five UK hits, but if you look at it on Spotify or YouTube Music, I mean they have no followers. There's nobody subscribing. Their music's not available. Whereas Prodigy has become, you know, right up there with the grunge bands or the Brit pop bands as one of the lasting groups of the 90s. So it's it's interesting. And so their com- career moves to survive that threat of imminent disaster are pretty interesting to follow. Um, and then they put out their first LP, the Experience LP, which went platinum in the in in, in the UK. And that doesn't mean it sells it sells a million dollars worth of records, I think. And so it's like three hundred thousand sold. Um, but already by 1993, they their brand was damaged, and they put out a single uh, initially um, on an on a white label as an anonymous um, performer. Didn't even put their name on it. That was called Earthbound One. It got some traction in the clubs, and then it gets re-released as One Love and goes all the way to number eight, UK Pop. So they, they kind of show that they're going to survive, and we'll come back to their transition uh, on their next album into viable album artists. That into have super, superstars of the mainstream yeah. world. The mainstream yes. world were, is the only thing that matters. Once you make that, then you've made it. 
Yeah, basically, although once you've made that, then you can't really go back to the dance floor. Um, so, you know, kind of the dilemma. But again, dance artists have a really hard time going back to the dance floors. And, you, you know, this goes all the way back to the Bee Gees and Chic, who are superstars of the, the clubs and then um, the the mainstream and then have no career, even though both Barry Gibb and now Rogers go on to these, you know, lasting careers as as producers and songwriters you know, there's something about dance artists that their brands kind of get disposable and get damaged. But let's go back to the Chemical Brothers now. Um, and I think we can introduce, I, well, actually, I want to talk about the, the, the club scenes where they, where they play. The, the, the Chemical Brothers were two guys from who met in Manchester. Neither one of them was from Manchester, but um, it's Tom Rollins and Ed Simons, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing those, um, who are big shoegaze rock fans so like my bloody valentine which was this incredibly loud guitar band one of the few guitar bands of the late 80s that i think was futuristic enough to have been a lasting influence and um so they were into that that was kind of their starting point and they were into all the manchester bands like new order and the smiths that's why they moved up there to go to college and they were also way into public enemy uh, massive Public Enemy fans, fans of the Bomb Squad, which was the, the team that produced all those Public Enemy albums. But then Reynolds says they were radicalized by Acid House. You want to speculate on what that means? Uh, probably the same as uh, everybody else who kind of goes out and, and experiences uh, a real eclectic dance mix under the influence of ecstasy is that it's a, an eye-opening experience. You know, uh, the, the barriers come down, not just between musical genres, but between people as well. And uh, possibilities seem rife if all of a sudden you want to put some My Bloody Valentine style drone in, but with a synthesizer, it no longer seems quite so crazy. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to put it. Their, their third eyes were opened on the dance floor, perhaps. Um, but they start um, DJing um, originally in 92 in Manchester at the Naked Under Leather Nights in a Manchester pub. And they were called the 237 Turbo Nutters, which was their street address at the time. Then they started calling themselves the Dust Brothers after the producers of Paul Boutique, uh, Paul's Boutique. And the original Dust Brothers also go on to produce all of Beck's um, second, third, fourth album, that whole dance music era of Beck. Why these guys thought they could just cop the name Dust Brothers is baffling to me. This is a British tradition that goes back to, to the Shadows, who were originally calling themselves the Drifters. Fellas, there's a group called the Drifters already with a bunch of hit records. They're gonna notice, that, you know. Yeah, the world just doesn't seem as big. And maybe when you're just a, a small-time group with maybe not that big of an, an aspiration, you don't realize what can happen if you put out like a, a record, and all of a sudden it becomes a big hit, and you're called the Dust Brothers, and you're influenced by the Dust Brothers, and the, the Dust Brothers phone you up and go, "Why are you called the Dust Brothers?" <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so there, there is some a visit to the courthouse to sort that out. And ultimately, they end up being pals and do some mutual remixing later on. So good to know that was a happy ending. But they eventually move um, to what was called the Heavenly Social Club in London, and are are the DJs and residents from about October 94 on. And this was had to do with Heavenly Records, which wasn't really a dance label. They, they end up producing some uh, big beat records, but primarily kind of an indie rock label. So I think that's a tell. And also that scene starts immediately drawing in a bunch of rock stars. I mean, you've got Paul Weller of the Jam hanging out there. 
um, Noel Gallagher of Oasis hanging out there, James Dean Bradfield of the Manic Street Preachers, Tim Burgess of the Charlatans hanging out there, um, you know, and Heavenly Records put out bands like the Manic Street Preachers, Street Preachers and, and Beth Orton, who ends up singing on, on some of these tracks, also doing some trip hop tracks. So, um, you know, kind of an interesting synthesis. Meanwhile, in Brighton, our friend, Mr. C Cook, who I keep wanting to call Smith, Norman Cook, uh, Fat Boy Slim, he becomes a DJ in residence at the Big Beat Boutique, which is originally at the Concord Club in Brighton that starts about 95. So if Big Beat has a regional home, it's Brighton. Um, and also South London is where uh, the Heavenly, so uh, I'm not sure the Heavenly Social Club was in South London, but there were, there were a couple of London clubs and then the Brighton Club. There was also the big Kahuna Burger Night. So there is a legit club birth of big beat yeah all these guys were kind of hanging out together as we find out so often when we look back uh you know uh, all like chemical brothers and fat boy slim were all playing in the same place along with death in vegas and a couple other guys that you know death in vegas is one of those guys that i never understood why he was you know as big as he was and then you find out that he's one of the founding fathers and you're like okay that makes that makes a bit more sense that he was there at the birth as well and stuff like that and kind of got carried along with it but, uh, you know, all these DJs were experimenting with mixing breaks, hip hop, house and techno. And they figured out that fusion that got everyone moving. Like a lot of these guys were longtime UK pub and, and club DJs. And they were taking those those New York club break records I was talking to you about and putting them over anything with a BPM the turntables could reach. So when they started producing their own tracks and songs, that influence can be felt not just on like putting like a, a crack in beat over a mainstream song but keeping that mainstream song structure in verse chorus verse so all of a sudden you're having the in, instead of the the classic techno track which is just kind of a repetitive six minute uh, modulation you have a, a four minute song again that a a, a music producer or, or a record label can look at and say we can do something with this uh, or a radio programmer or a rockist like myself who was snapping up these CDs as soon as they started coming out. Um, yeah, I think the Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim are kind of the first time you see instrumental rock records since the early 60s. I mean, since things like Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, that had fallen out of favor as disco replaced live bands as dance acts. The whole reason instrumental records were such a big part of pop music from the 1920s to the 1960s was because people like to dance. And so you'd put on those instrumental records and that would fill up the dance floor. And then when you had DJs replacing bands, you suddenly didn't need instrumental records anymore because the DJ would just stretch out the drum break or the good part, instrumental part of the record so long that it was effectively like an instrumental record. So I'm kind of fascinated by the Chemical Brothers and Big Beat as a resurgence of that kind of instrumental rock. Um, and even though these records weren't made with guitar, bass, and drums. Like you say, they follow the song structure, and that's what connects them to rock. But let's hear a word from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Chemical Brothers and their recording career. And so we've talked about um, the future Chemical Brothers, Rollins and Simons, who are still the Dust Brothers um, as DJs, but now they, they mix a record. And you mentioned Song to the Siren, which... Um, and I, I can't now I'm blanking. I didn't write down what um, UK synth group that they sampled uh, to to make that record. But um, they they make a record, self-release it. They can't get anybody interested in picking it up. They take it to dance shops and, and club DJs. Everybody gives it the big thumbs down, except 
Andrew Weatherall, who we might remember um, as the producer of Screamy Delica by Primal Scream, one of that first generation of British DJs, along with Paul Oakenfield, et cetera. And he's still a massively popular, influential DJ. So he adds this uh, Chemical Brothers, although at this time it's still the Dust Brothers. He adds um, Song to the Siren to his sets, and they're kind of on their way. And then throughout 1993, they end up doing these remixes for groups like Lion Rock, Left Field, um, and now my uh, autocorrect has gibberish the names of the other remixes they did. But anyway, they, they'd, they'd start doing um, remixes. And these groups like Lion Rock and Left Field that are sort of sometimes mentioned with Big Beat, but didn't do Big Beat, but were kind of on that nexus of dance and pop rock crossover. And another group in that category was Underworld. Um, and one of their big breaks was um, Chemical Beats, was the, uh, the next big song in 94. And that ends up being put on the PlayStation game Wipeout, which also had Orbital and Underworld in its soundtrack. And then they toured the States in 95, opening for Orbital and Underworld. And that's probably the move that got the, brought them to the attention of the American Dust Brothers, who hit them with the cease and desist, and they have to change their name. And we'll come back to the Chemical Brothers again. But that's yeah, another... we can't we can't really understate the effect that that Wipeout uh, XL soundtrack had for everybody that was on that. Like everybody was already kind of uh, a big name over in the UK, and they 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 had all kind of established themselves as serious producers, and they were getting attention. They were kind of the toast of the, of, of of the town as uh, as the next big thing in electronic music. But when they all got combined on that Wipeout XL album and it came out in america i like everybody had that cd i had that cd and although it gave me a headache to listen to it from front to back it, it, there's a lot of really good tracks on there yeah and and even more people played it heard it as part of the playstation game and well i'd have to look at the math on that but I, that's my bet that more more kids heard it directly on the playstation game and then that tour i think also lays the groundwork for the chemical brothers breaking through in America. You know, when you come over and you tour, that's kind of the difference between the police and the jam. I mean, you know, the police uh, stuck it out, toured, 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 and made, broke it big in America. The jam did one tour and said, no, thanks. <laughs> it's a big empty place. And they don't like our music and we'll just stay in England. And the Chemical Brothers were uh, doing the slog in America right from the get-go. But let's let's go back to um, Mr. Cook and, and Fatboy Slim and talk about him a little bit because he he gets big around this period too. And so, like I said, he had first comes to pop attention as the basis for the house Martins. And this lasts from like 85 to 88. He was never the main guy. Uh, he was buddies with the main guy and was drafted in when their bass player quit after their record came out and they needed somebody to play on tour, but that was never really his vision. And then um, he had multiple groups like Beats International, which was a UK hip hop group, which went number one with a track called Dub Be Good To Me. Unfortunately, it stole the bass line completely from the Clash song um, Guns of Brixton and the lyrics from a track by the SOS band so that he lost, I believe, multiple lawsuits, ended up having to pay all his royalties plus double. Um, so, you know, a classic case of having a hit record ended up in a poorhouse. Yeah, it also apparently destroyed his first uh, marriage. So that's, uh, yeah, it's one of those amazing success, great disaster kind of situations. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if you want to curse somebody, wish him a uh, hit hit record. And uh, it might just be the worst thing that ever happened to him. But he wasn't deterred. He goes on to multiple other projects, the Freak Power, Pizza Man, the Mighty Dubcats. I think all of those put out records. 
He ends up opening the boutique nightclub there in Bristol, which is a be- beach town on the southern coast of England, uh, with Garrick, Gareth Hansen. And the university town, which is an important, uh, like the most important kind of thing as for why it managed to, to get that vitality needed to sustain a, a, an interesting scene. Excellent point. And um, so he, he and Gareth, his partner in Mighty Dubcats, opened the boutique, which is where they have the Big Beat Boutique. Um, and he creates the... Fatboy Slim Alter Ego in 1996. And originally, when he puts out um, stuff for Skint Records, he's deeply disguised. I think it was Pizza Man was his current major label contract project at the time. So he's kind of doing it on the down low until it gets so big that he can't do it on the down low anymore. Uh, He drops Better Living Through Chemistry in September of 96 on Skint Records. And you know, the rest is history. Basically, yeah, Better Living Through Chemistry was basically a compilation of all the tracks that he'd been playing at the boutique and honed to a to a fine point for dancing. And then maybe one or two extras just to, just to pad it out to give it more of an album sound. But those were all like uh, basically forged on the dance floor, which I know Simon Reynolds also always says is the best recipe for 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 great lasting music. I, I think I think he's right there, and um, and so we'll come back to Fatboy Slim, but he's he's off and running and already making a big commercial impact with his records. And the, the next group I want to talk about is Bentley Rhythm Ace, which I think has kind of been overlooked because they were never quite as big in the states as the other groups, but um, definitely a big part of the scene. It was Mike Stokes and Richard Marsh, and Richard Marsh was a full member of Pop Elite itself, which. I would kind of compare them to Primal Scream. They're somewhere between Primal Scream and the KLF and groups like Cold Cut and Mars. They were a Sampladelica type group, um, medic commentary, et cetera, et cetera, but had enough rock music and, and industry packaging such that I was aware of them, uh, for example, in the late 80s and early 90s, and, and you know made a fairly big impact. I think the critics were a bit more excited about them than was merited. I mean... I think what you see with stuff like Primal Scream and Pop Elite itself is they were hip to some of the things that were going on on the dance floors, kind of like the Manchester bands. And so the rock critics could recognize they were onto something newer and hipper than most of the rock bands, but they mistook the imitation for the thing itself, I think. And so I'm not trying to diss Pop Elite itself. I'm just saying that, that they Maybe they that's more- why they're underappreciated. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. So. Well, this is Bentley Rhythm Ace that was underappreciated. And so they're from Birmingham, home of Black Sabbath and Electric Light Orchestra and many uh, British um, bands of the past. And their kind of novel angle was that they mixed a lot of novelty records at like Exotica and Lounge with their hip hop. And so, and that kind of Exotica and Lounge was a big thing. I don't know a big thing is the right thing, but it was a it was a burgeoning underground scene in the 90s with kind of jaded older Gen Xers who had been through the punk thing and the grunge thing and the pop punk thing and were kind of burnt out on rock and were just digging through the crates and having a good time, you know, drinking and playing records. And, hey, here's these crazy records from our you know, grandparents' attics that are that our older brothers and, you know, the boomers hated this stuff, but we think it's fun. And um, Bentley Rhythm Ace, I think had a pretty good formula of, of packaging that stuff. They had this uh, 12 inch on Skint Records that came out in 96 called This Is Car Boot Techno Dis- Disco Boot. Um, was the, and I, I think my autocorrect fucked that up again, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you autocorrect. 
I know I need to turn this shit off. I've, I've been um, fixing it one song at a time and I don't always remember to do it. But then they put out a full album on uh, Bentley Rhythm Ace on Scant in 97 and um, actually had a track, Bentley's Gonna Sort You Out, that went to number 17 on the UK pop chart. So uh, Steph's telling me it's time to cue again. And this is Prodigy serial thriller, Thrilla from 1997. Tell us why you picked this one. Oh, I think when you're talking about Prodigy as a big beat band, uh, Serial Thriller off Fat of the Land is is one of those tracks that shows you that, yes, they are. There's a lot of argument, you know, experience, obviously, is a breakbeat hardcore and jilted generation other than, you know, maybe Poison uh, and uh, Their Law is 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 very heavily influenced by breakbeat hardcore. But, uh, I mean, Serial Thriller is the completion of their evolution into a big beat group. So I picked that one. All right, so Prodigy, Serial Thriller. So that was Serial Thriller by Prodigy. And let's get back to Prodigy um, and go ahead and run through the, their second uh, phase of their career. Um, like Reynolds said, they had survived what seemed like their imminent death um, after pioneering the Toy Town techno uh, trend uh, with Charlie. And uh, he says that they sidestepped the decline of the mega rave circuit. And part of that was by transitioning to an album artist. And so their second album, Music for the Jilted Generation, um, which hit number one in the UK album charts, came out in July 94. It was a concept album responding to the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 94. This is really the first time that Prodigy sounds like Big Beat. Um, it's not, like you say, they're not quite all the way there but they're heading in that direction. Yeah, and there are bridges in this album like Poison is 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 you know one of the first tracks that has that mixes in slowed down hip hop breaks and that's kind of the 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 big indicator. You you still have a bunch of tracks in there that are that are very clearly breakbeat hardcore influenced and then you have other tracks that clearly show you that Liam Howell, Liam Howlett has been listening to a lot of uh, US hip hop and 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 has been leaning on that sound a lot. So, you know, as far as going backwards to Prodigy, this is an in-between album. It very much has tracks that bridge back to experience and forward to Fat of the Land. Yep, and which is the kind of thing you would say about a classic rock group. So Prodigy actually puts together a discography of albums that I think hold up, and we can talk about trends and, and their evolution as artists. So it's pretty interesting stuff. They also add a guitarist for the live shows. They've already had a keyboard player along with uh, Howlett for the live shows, plus the two dancers. The two dancers start rapping live around this time as well. And and I think this was a lesson really that Ministry was the first group I saw do this in the States where uh, you know groups like KMFDM or Thrill Kill Cult or um, Skinny Puppy when I saw them live or even Public Enemy and De La Soul when I saw them live in the late 80s. The sound system just wasn't there to push it the way, say, a hardcore or a heavy metal band could just kill it in a club or a, or an arena. Um, and it was Ministry that was the first group to add live drums and, and live synths and live guitars, basically copped the Butthole Surfers 
live show of Butthole Surfers were a big hardcore underground band in the States at the time and perfected this kind of rock industrial blend for live acts. And Prodigy follows this formula where they add a guitar player. Same thing Nine Inch Nails was doing around this time. Um, again, an industrial act. And so Prodigy's kind of in that same niche as the industrial bands. I remember seeing people, the first time I saw a Prodigy CD was in the collection of somebody who had all those Nine Inch Nails and Ministry albums. So I originally thought of them as, a, as an industrial group. And when I heard them, there was nothing in there that struck me as amazingly different. I wasn't really diving into the nuance, but, um, and then their live shows, they could really pull off a dramatic live show. And they were also listening to indie pop because um, their their next wave of singles like Firestarter from 96 samples The Breeders. Uh, Kim Deal ends up getting the songwriting credit for that. That goes number one UK. It went number 30 on the US pop charts. It went gold in the US with 500,000 sales. And the key there was Keith Flint moves from dancer to vocalist and he changed his look and kind of had a reverse mohawk where he's shaved in the middle and, and has spikes on both sides and uh, becomes their front man. And Maxim yeah, the story kind of goes that in the, on the second album, they had Maxim doing uh, Poison and that was like the big hit. And, and that was something that Keith Flint was kind of looking at. He said, I really wanted to do it. But at the time, he was kind of a soft looking, long haired hippie looking raver guy. So he changed his look, came in for this new album, picked Firestarter as an instrumental track that he wanted to, to, to rap over or sing over or whatever you want to call it. And he was like, this is it. This is mine. And we're going to make this the single. Yeah. And it worked and, and it goes on to become, you know, the face of the prodigy. And, and, you know, Maxim Reality was doing some pretty cool things with his look at the time too. He had one, I think one of the pioneers of those crazy contacts that made him look like he had, you know, predator eyes and stuff. And the two of them were a very effective team, but I think Keith Flint pretty thoroughly lapped him um, uh, in the, in the pop consciousness, but that whole impact, the multiracial thing, the, 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 references to punk rock openly sort of identifying themselves as punk rock and this is a time when you know groups like sublime and um green day are big in the states and so the whole pop punk thing is big punk is having yet another resurgence in the states and so i think people didn't quite know what to make of them but they were successful in the states at the, from this point on and then you know they'd already been picked up and dropped by mul multiple record labels and you know rick rubin had sunk a fortune into trying to do elect what they called electronica in the states or electronic dance music and failed and had a chance to sign the prodigy and passed on him and uh madonna ends up signing him for her maverick label in the states and the fat of the land their third album comes out in june 97 Massive hit, number one UK, of course, but also debuted, I believe, at number one US in July of 97. Then they have this whole ridiculous controversy around the song Smack My Bitch Up, which was samples from Ultramagnetic MCs, which is the group that Cool Keith was in, an uh, old school hip hop group. They take these samples. I don't think they quite understood the original meaning of it, and definitely it's hard to tell whether they understood how much it was going to piss people off because it on its face seems like a open advocacy of beating up women, you know, which is not cool. Um, I mean, it, through historically speaking through all of the old hardcore uh, breakbeat uh, time, like you can have samples talking about blowing people's heads off with shotguns. This is a quick little snatch and that'll be in a happy hardcore tune. And so I, I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, at the time until I heard the beastie boys complain about it, I never even thought about, 
you know, it was just kind of like a word salad. You never really thought of the implications. You never went so deep down the rabbit hole thinking about the name of the title to realize that it's advocating violence against women, maybe in a pimp prostitute type type situation. You know, the more you think about it, the worse it gets. So obviously, one of the Beastie Boys had been sitting there for a while thinking about it and brewing about it until he decides to phone Liam Howlett up and says, you're not allowed to play this song at the concert we're both playing at. Yeah. And this, of course, I think I think it was King Ad Rock who was already dating. Um, now I'm forgetting her name, the, the woman from Bikini Kill. So, you know, ironically, the Beastie Boys from, go from being the most sexist retrograde act of the 80s that might be hyperbole, but one of the most sexist retrograde acts of the 80s um, amongst stiff competition for people like Motley Crue and Poison, et cetera. But then by this point, the BC boys are conscious and they have this feud with Prodigy. Prodigy defies them, goes ahead and plays the song live. Um, and I think that's a pretty successful model. We've seen this work over, it's the Donald Trump model of just power through, build the controversy. And I mean, um, maybe in the long run, the prodigy paid consequences for that. Obviously, uh, Keith Flint's tragic death a few years ago, um, from suicide, you know, I, I don't know that that's connected to that, but there's, you know, cons consequences for this kind of karma and controversy that, that you build up, but also probably might've just been depression. I don't know. Anyway, before we wrap it up, I figure if you, if you want to understand more about the prodigy's influences and how they kind of tie better into, to big beat. To revisit, and this is a, an album that doesn't get much attention, is the Dirt Chamber Sessions, which is a, a Liam Howlett uh, DJ mix that he made for Annie Mac on BBC Radio. And uh, it's got, it, it's an amazing collection of, of hip hop and, and breakbeat and uh, indie and punk. And, and it basically shows, uh, it's kind of like uh, that Daft Punk song, Teachers, where it's like all of Liam's heroes all mixed together in one one kind of cool mix. And it, it, it's very different, obviously, from a Prodigy album. So I think, you know, a lot of people kind of picked it up and put it down and didn't really understand what it was. But, you know, it's his Grandmaster Flash uh, style uh, mashup for, for that goes on for an hour. And it's it's fascinating. Cool stuff. And let's go ahead and hear our final song. This is the Propeller Heads. Bang on from 1998. Why'd you pick this one? It basically shows you the frenzy uh, that Big Beat has turned into by that point. So fast, so raucous, so ridiculous. It was hard not to pick Spy Break, but I figure Spy Break by Propeller Heads is the track that was in The Matrix, and people just see it as the Matrix song. So I picked picked Bang On from them, which is a bit more of a of a lesser known track, but still it captures that frenetic. Uh, energy that Big Beat's kind of going into that turns into a bit of a dead end eventually. All right, propeller heads, bang on. the propeller heads bang on from 1998 and we still have a lot of ground to cover in the last 10 minutes so next thing i want to get to is the chemical brothers massive explosion so you got um exit planet dust which is on uh, junior boys own records and you know you'll recognize the name boys own if you've been listening to the series because that was these were guys who were 
there at Ibiza for the original, you know, acid or ecstasy, you know, revelation who brought acid house to the UK. Um, a couple of the guys who did the junior or the boys own fanzine form the junior boys own records and chemical brothers are the ones that make them, um, quite a bit of money uh, before they jump to ship. Exoplanet Dust comes out in July 95 on Junior Boys Zone, sells a million worldwide. They move to Virgin Records. Um, in August 96, they open up for Oasis at Nebworth with 125,000 people attending. In October 96, they drop Setting Sun with Noel Gallagher on vocals. It goes number one UK pop. A great song. It's so reminiscent of the Beatles Tomorrow Never Knows from 1966 that the Beatles actually sued them and uh, they didn't sample that song. And and if you break it down, they didn't even use the same drum beat, but they it's one of the best examples of stealing the feel of a song without actually stealing the technical stuff. The blurred yeah, lines. The, uh, the lawyers for Apple Corps, which is Beatles, uh, you know, the, the people that own all the Beatles stuff and, you know, the Beatles label that is now just kind of being run by Beatle lawyers. But they were after the Chemical Brothers for a while. There was there was tracks on on the other albums that they'd been looking at really closely and uh, they really wanted to get them. <laughs> yeah. And failed uh, just like they failed to beat Apple uh, computer for swiping the name with the handshake agreement. They wouldn't use it for music. But uh, be that as may. Um, you know, a brilliant song. And and to me, it was like one of the most biggest compliments you could pay the Beatles to say, look, the Beatles were 30 years ahead of their time on some of their stuff. And, um, you know, and, and, and it was, it was put a lot of shine on Noel Gallagher introduced the chemical brothers to a lot of Oasis fans who were massive at the time. Um, then in April 97, they put out dig your own hole, uh, debuts at number 14 on the Billboard U.S. album charts, sells almost a million copies in the U.S. alone, of course, goes multi-platinum in Britain. Uh, but by June 99 in their Surrender album, they've more moved on to House than Big Beat. Um, Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim, claims that the, the, the three of them went on a vacation together around this time and said, what are you going to do next? Not Big Beat was the, the mutual agreement, and, and they all moved away from that. Um, they end up playing Woodstock uh, 99 in July, so does Fatboy Slim. That, of course, is a massive debacle. I want to run through Fatboy Slim's career. Uh, he's got the Rockefeller Skank in June 98, number six UK pop, number one US dance. Um, his album, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, drops in October of 98, number one UK albums. Number 34 U.S. ends up selling 1.4 million in the U.S., 1.2 million in the U.K. But by the time of his Halfway Between the Gutter and the Stars album in 2000, and this was his response to the Let's Not Do Big Beat Anymore, um, that goes number eight U.K., number 51 U.S., and is definitely a turn away from Big Beat and, and was less popular. He's also doing tons of remixes at this time. I want to shout out his remix of Corner Shop's Brimful of Asha, which he took to number one, you know, just a class, just a pretty regular indie pop record that, um, you know, good indie pop, but, you know, the, the kind of thing that I think it went number 34 on the British charts, but after he re remixed it, it goes number one and hits the charts in the States, inadvertently swamping the corner shop's career and triggering off this big backlash. Um, and we've got very little time. I want to run through some of the other 
some of the record labels and the other. Uh, uh, you don't want to talk about the backlash because it's like Fatboy well, Slim became the soundtrack to every '90s teen movie trailer ever. It's and true. It's true. Yeah, it, it got so bad they started calling him Fatboy Slim, which is a name he hated so much it apparently made him reevaluate his entire musical direction. Like that that meeting with him and the Chemical Brothers when they went on vacation probably was after he he was called Fatboy Slim once again. And and he was just like, okay, I got to do, I got to do something to to gain some respect here. Yeah, and that's another thing was the use of this music in soundtracks, TV ads, and video games contributed to the massive popularity, but it also contributed to the to the massive overexposure. And so, um, yeah, so apologies to the Crystal Method from Vegas, who are like the biggest American exponent of it, um, the Wise Guys. Uh, Hard Knocks, DJ Freddie Fresh, Boom Boom Satellites, uh, Ceasefire, Death in Vegas, Apollo 440. Those are all uh, other big beat groups. That, and some of the, I found that some of this stuff, I found this a pretty fun listening week, I have to say. The, the, it was fun to go back and listen to a lot of this stuff. Um, you had Junior Boys Own Records, which was Terry Farley and Stephen Hall, the original Ibiza crew. You had Heavenly Records, which put out Monkey Mafia. What DJ John Carter's project. You had Skint Records out of Brighton. You had Wall of Sound Records, which was uh, ex-boy band singer Mark Jones' A Perfect Day. That was a little bit of trivia. And there, um, Give Him Enough Dope compilation of trip hop and big beat stuff from 94 was a big thing. But let's try to fit in the propeller heads too. Um, or I don't know. Let's talk about the backlash. The other thing was this scene got linked in with Britpop, which with Oasis and Blur was massive, both in Britain and the States. And the electronica push from the major labels in America. So Rick Rubin and others had tried and failed. They had tried and failed to make house music a pop a thing in the States. And electronica was their third bite at Apple and the one that succeeded, at least in the short term, with record sales. But the backlash, again, um, was pretty significant. I mean, you had so much talk about this, quote, unquote, electronica genre, which was nobody liked the term electronica, for one thing. The fans never adopted it. And it just had this feel of corporate BS, I think, of, of kind of hype and and trying to push something that um, it's not that it wasn't real. It's just that they ran it into the ground. Yeah, there's there's a whole I mean, anytime you, you start making mixing like rock guitar and, and electronic music and the labels get a hold of it, you know, there's going to be a ton of really bad stuff that's going to make a lot of people really angry. There's going to be a lot of groups and, and artists that people like that get pushed into making this sound by labels using producers and, and, and the backlash against those people is, is going to be pretty big. So I feel like that's kind of what happened. Uh, the, you know, the prodigy managed to escape it because they had a real mean, fierce sound uh, that sounded authentic. But then you have a bunch of authentic, fake, angry music. And then you have on the other side, the more fat boy, slim, uh, positive, uplifting stuff that just ends up sounding like a Carnival Cruise commercial. So all in all, like the inauthenticity from 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 all sides of capitalism, once again, coming in and commoditizing uh, a sound and jamming it down our throats just really uh, murdered it. Yeah. And it's also telling to contrast the Chemical Brothers who managed to keep their career going by moving into new styles, whereas Fatboy Slim, he kind of 
you know, got too mellow or too introspective or something. And, and, and he's had another resurgence. He's, he's kind of figured out his place because he's out as a DJ now in the world. And he, he basically plays a, a kind of Balearic mix of, of, of breaks house and, and techno and stuff like that. And he had star 69, which was a massive hit that came back an underground hit that allowed him back into the underground. And, and since then he's been working with a lot of the top house and uh, house and tech producers making some really interesting things. So he, he's managed to get himself kind of back back into into relevance and and his his mixes are a real melange of the best uh, of of all the the kind of mainstream stuff out there with an underground feel to it and lots of lots of mashups and and white labels that he kind of makes and never releases and stuff so he's got a cool thing going on right now and I, you know good for him for giving up on the drugs and alcohol and everything else like that and getting his yes seems seems like everything is is very bright now as opposed to before you read some of the uh, some of the interviews and it just sounds like he sounds like spuds mckenzie you know it's like the party <laughs> it, it just sounds like a bad like it was going towards a bad place so yeah and i'm glad you mentioned balearic because that was a, a key that was kind of the influence of that eclectic style was how the Chemical Brothers, when they were the Dust Brothers and um, Fatboy Slim, started out DJing. It wasn't just the big beat stuff. They were doing a wide variety of stuff, and the big beat tracks would come in as the coup de gras. But you can't just coup de gras all the time. And uh, as Damien Harris of Skit Records ended up saying, big beat started off as a breath of fresh air and ended up like a loud, annoying drunk you wish would leave the party. And, um, you know, that's just kind of the, the thing with us raucous frat boys is uh, <laughs> it's kind of fun when we arrive at the party because you've won, but then we start partying too hard and chase everybody else off. So another thing I think that killed the scene was 9-11, um, that once the Twin Towers fall, that whole Clinton-Blair era is thoroughly over. And in the 90s, with the prosperity and the dot com, there was this hopefulness. I mean, after seeing the the wall fall, and there'd been all these good sort of international events that happened all through the '90s, and it was really easy to lose your head. And Big Beat happens at the same time as kind of the jiggy era of hip hop and the Brit pop era, and that second wave of grunge bands, the Creeds and Nickelbacks, and all that kind of stuff. So. It was one of those good times that leaves a definite hangover, and that's what Big Beat did. So any final thoughts on Big Beat? I just want to give a shout-out to one of the many offshoots. Like, uh, you do enough research, and you can find uh, Big Beat elements in a whole bunch of uh, dance and, and non-dance music, really. But uh, if anybody's looking for, to me, the, the real spiritual successor to Big Beat, it's in uh, Future Funk, which is basically what, what Grizz, Grammatic, and Pretty Lights call their kind of music it's just massive in america right now all the festival lineups are crammed with these guys because it's a very wook friendly mix of jam band funk and dance music beats and it's kind of fun and it's uplifting and it's got a real real groove to it and everything old is new again so i'm glad to hear it's had a second life and next week we'll be back to talk about 90s house a genre that reynolds admits uh he he gave too little treatment um and we'll talk about the successors of 90s house including speed garage and we already talked a little bit about tech step we'll tease a little bit of two-step i believe but again a lot of research to do because reynolds kind of underserves us but for ryan harkness i'm nate wilcox and we're continuing our discussion of simon reynolds energy flash a journey through rave music and dance culture and this week we also had some help from the little big beat book by rory hoy so thanks for listening 
follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk the 90s house and garage scene and its successor genre, Speed Garage. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.